Our first Bible reading is from the Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 1, reading verses 26 to 35, the birth of Jesus foretold. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. Amen. The second reading is from the letter to the Romans, verse 8, reading verses 31 to 39. God's love in Christ Jesus. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed, indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. There's an uncomfortable discussion going on at the moment among a particular group of theologians about the impact of one of their number. A man called John Howard Yoder had a significant impact on a school of thinking of theology in which I find myself at home to do with the radical 16th century reformation and the ways in which that theology might be developed in today's world. 
Yoda wrote several influential books. One of them is called The Politics of Jesus. And that was a really important book in the 1970s in examining uh, the edginess and the challenge of taking Jesus seriously and exploring how to live as non-conformists, non-conforming to the prevailing culture, both secular and church-based. Yoder died at the end of the 1990s, and in the last few years, it has become public knowledge that while he was in a teaching position at a university in the States, he was a serial emotional and sexual abuser of many of his women students. And there's a painful and continuing debate about how, if at all, theologians and believers can continue to use and teach and work with his writings. And of course, that's not a question only being asked of theologians about theologians at the moment. The whole place of Weinstein's work, given what we now know about the way he was treating people, is called into question. How we deal with people whose lives and behaviour are problematic and distressing, how we deal with their work, has become a significant issue. And this week, in our rapid reflection on Reformation themes and their continuing gifts to us today, we're considering Calvin. And Calvin's legacy in terms of writing and of offering a systematic way of thinking about who God is and therefore how we are to live as the people of God, that, that influence is undeniable and it is inescapable in Western Europe. Even if we're not well versed in Calvin's theology, even if we've never read anything that he's written, his major book, The Institute of the Christian Religion, it's really better to think of it as a series of books. It went through so many editions and developed in so many directions. But it has shaped church and culture in these islands in a variety of ways and has had a similar impact across Europe. Calvin didn't separate church and civil community any more than his contemporaries did. And so he was writing not just for life within the church, but to determine and to shape the wider culture, and he did. His life story, briefly, is that he was born in Noyon in France. He started to train as a lawyer. He became convinced of Reformation theology that was just developing. He's about half a generation younger than Luther. Um, he had to leave France because it wasn't a safe place for the new theology at that point. He traveled around. He arrived eventually in Geneva. He was invited to work with those who were instituting reform in that city-state. And he remained in Geneva for the rest of his life, apart from a few years when he was expelled, because those who were opposed to his kind of reformation came to power and got rid of him, and then discovered the reformation fell apart without him, so they invited him back. And he, when he came back, he gained even more power over both the church and the civil community. And he wrote a vast amount. He wrote commentaries, and he wrote sermons, and he taught, and he ran an academy. And his major work institutes of, of the Christian religion was written first as a fairly small introductory pamphlet for Protestants in France. That was his point, to protect the community he'd had to leave. And it kind of growed a bit like Topsy until it became a very detailed and significant and systematic exploration of this new theology and a way of defending it in the controversies of his generation. And it had, and it continues to have, a huge influence, and its themes are many and various, as you would expect, from a wholehearted system of theology. It became the dominating theology in the non-Lutheran part of Reform. And it's largely a geographical division, 
But Calvinism as a system was not so dependent on the secular power for its institution in the way that Lutheranism was in its early forms. <clears throat> Calvin, because he started by writing for the Protestants in France, who at that point were not in power, in fact were being persecuted, he was writing for those who didn't have the backing of the princes, the way that Luther had. And so he developed a way of being church and a way of existing in society that reflected on that and found a way for the church to exist without royal prerogative, as it were. And that meant it was very much more exportable than Lutheranism. And it was particularly influential in city-states and in communities where the move to reform was actually quite disputed. It shaped the reform in Scotland, for example, while Mary was Roman Catholic queen. So there was a, a disjunction. It became important in England. In England, those who went into exile when Mary Tudor was queen, and when it was illegal to be a Protestant, and she was executing Protestants, a lot of them went to Geneva, and when they returned they came back with this theology. They came back when Elizabeth became queen and they brought this theology and practice with them and largely through controversy and fights, it had a big impact on the Church of England and it continues. If you read the 39 articles, it reflects a lot of Calvinist theology. It was also the theology that shaped separatism in this country. It's a deep part of one of the strands of Baptist history. It was the lasting division between two strands of Baptist life up until the end of the 19th century. The split between those who were Calvinist, and that was the biggest group, and those who were not, they had a different origin. It wasn't a, it wasn't a group that started off together and fell apart. It was two different groups. Um, but the non-Calvinists had a different origin and held a different theology of salvation. And that this difference seems not to matter now amongst Baptists would completely bamboozle our forebears from the 17th and the 18th and actually the 19th century. And the heart of the difference for Baptists is the one thing that if you know anything about Calvin, you're likely to know, his doctrine of predestination or election. That is, that God has chosen from our before our birth, or indeed from before all time, those who will be saved, and there is nothing we can do about it one way or the other. We are saved because God has chosen it, or we are not saved because God has chosen not to save us. And that is the bit of Calvinism that everybody knows. It's actually not the center of Calvin's theology. His center is the sovereignty of God, but this is one of the ways it works out. But it's not new to Calvin. Luther actually argued much the same, but he argued it with less energy because he was more concerned about other things, so it doesn't carry the same weight in his theology. Augustine was teaching it. You can see it in Paul's writings. It is there in the letter to the Romans, in that passage that uh, Bill read for us, who will say anything against God's elect? It's part of a whole the theology of election, and it's there in other parts of Scripture too. So it's not new, and as I say, it's not Calvin's most dominant theme, but it became a central part of the ongoing life of Calvinism and its place in the church. And it's not a comfortable theology nowadays. It's not one it's easy to make sense of. But there is also another discomfort with Calvin. What do we do with the work of somebody whose life and choices distress us? Yodor's work is under question because of the way he behaved towards his women students. 
In the first five years of Calvin's leadership in Geneva, 58 people were executed for heresy. Now, what do we do with that? How do we interact with a theology as influential and effective as that when it is also a theology and a practice that killed people? Now, I'm not sure I've got an answer to this. I know it is not good enough to say different times, therefore we cannot judge. If we say that, nothing ever changes. It's only when people start to say this is unacceptable that unacceptable things are challenged and changed. Slavery was treated as normal by white Westerners until people started to point out that it was wrong. The way Yoder was behaving towards his female students was not unusual. It was perhaps more extreme, but it was not unusual in the way men treated women at the time. But the fact that it was to some extent normal does not mean it was right. That people were executed in Geneva was not weird or strange in that generation. But that it was normal does not mean it was right. And it was determined and shaped by the theology. So what does that do to the theology? Because we can't divorce theology from people and we can't separate people from sin and brokenness and wrong choices and being trapped in systems that shape us and misshape us and constrict us and constrain us. I can look back at Calvin 500 years ago and say, how could you think that killing people for holding a different theology was okay? But in a couple of generations, somebody's going to look back at our theology and practice and say, how did you think that was okay? And the very fact that we can't yet see what they will look at in that way is one of the indications that we, just as much as Calvin, that we are held by our system and by our culture. And here's where I think, and this is an experiment, so tell me if you think I'm getting this right or wrong, but this is where I think this intersects with Calvin's theology and what it might offer us today. His teaching on predestination is one we don't easily own or feel at home with, most of us. It sounds harsh and cold, deterministic and cruel. A couple of years ago, John Wesley referred, a couple of hundred years ago, John Wesley referred to it as that hellish doctrine that overturns God's mercy, justice, and truth. But when we look at it as teaching in a context, it does take on a different shape. Calvin was talking to a community who had just lost, they may have freely given it up because they were convinced, but they had lost everything that told them how to relate to God, how to ensure a relationship, how to preserve it. Whatever we may think of the medieval church, it had a very clear structure to it. The sacraments were the way of accessing God's saving presence. There were seven of them. They covered all aspects of life from birth through to death. There was a very strong doctrine of heaven and hell. There were the doctrines we touched on last week about purgatory and the treasury of merits. And whatever you think about it theologically, it has an interesting psychological aspect. It allows people to know that even if they don't feel good enough to be accepted into the bliss of heaven, there is a process of purgation, of cleaning, of sorting out that sin that people knew was inevitable in everyday life. So while purgatory might have been a frightening prospect, it was not absolute. There was a way from that to the bliss of heaven. And there was a process by which somebody could get from one to the other. 
and there was a strong community sense of being part of the church so that even if you weren't good enough at the religious bit others were and you could be included in that so monks and nuns prayed and that helped us all priests did the sacrament and they were given to us all there was a process of confession and absolution that was public and personal there was a whole structure there that enabled people to know how to be in touch with God and the Reformation took that away the structures on which people had depended forever or at least within living memory what they depended on for themselves and for their parents and for their grandparents and for their great-grandparents to be saved they were all taken away and there was a physical representation of that the services looked different they were in a different language now we might think that having a service in your own language is an advantage but can you imagine a context in which the language in which you have always heard God spoken to and heard God speak to you as it were the words of blessing the words of absolution the words of the mass that all just disappears Remember, those of you who experienced it, the disorientation of hearing your favorite Bible verse in a new translation, or singing a hymn that you've known all your life in a different form. And it's much more than that, this transition to a different language. And the churches looked different. The statues and the paintings that told you the story of your faith were removed or whitewashed over or even destroyed. The priest looked different, no longer in colorful robes, standing with his back to you, praying to God. The, the new priests were academics. They stood and faced the congregation. They taught and they argued. They expected you to read and understand and take part. And instead of carrying out the holy actions that blessed you and brought you the body and blood of your savior, they expected you to take responsibility for it yourself. All the things that you knew, just knew because it's the way things were, we're no longer there to construct a scaffolding and a house of security and salvation. Now, you might well have been convinced of the new theology in the practice. You might well have been upset and angered by or shut out by the existing theology and its misuse. But somewhere, deep down in the non-rational bit of people, it felt at the very least different and for many, very unsafe. And that's the context for Calvin's preaching about election. He finds it in the words of scripture, he preaches it and he teaches it, and his emphasis, as the emphasis is in scripture, is not on deciding who is elect and who is not. And it's not on, you don't need to try because you've got no say in it. It is what God decides, God does, and God has decided to save. So it's not so much you don't have any say in it as you don't need to be anxious or afraid. Even if all the things that have reassured you previously have shaped your sense of security have gone. Because God is unshakable. And his choice to save cannot be destroyed by anything that you do or anything that happens to you. Calvin's insistence on election is about assurance. Not the assurance that I am saved and someone else is not. But that who and what I am in God is dependent on God, not on me. Not on the choices I make, not on the convictions I hold, not on my capacity to get it right, and nor is it damaged by my capacity to get it wrong, or to do wrong, or to be broken and to live that out. And this matters, I think. It matters within us and it matters in our wider world. 
God's holding of us is because God holds us, not because we hold God. So even if my current experience is of disconnection from God, or uncertainty and confusion, or loss, or even despair, the assurance is God is not letting go of me, regardless of how I feel about it. And for many of us, that really matters. Our, what are technically called religious affections, that's not fluffy feelings of love for God, but our, our religious emotion, our reaction and experience and perception, it can be affected by so much. By our circumstances, by our age, by our state of health, by our digestion, and more deeply by our temperament. Those of us who are depressive will find that that affects our faith, for example. There are days when I know God doesn't love me, because that's what it feels like. And all of that subjection, which is real, which has its impact, perhaps especially when we don't notice that it's having an impact on us, all of that is not only and is not even the truest guide to what God is doing in and for us. And on the days when we find it hard to believe because we do not have the capacity, the assurance that God is holding us, not that we are holding God, really matters. And it has its external impact too. The world feels very scary. Things feel like they are out of control. I hear in various quarters people saying, for example, this doesn't feel like my country anymore. And they're not all saying it for the same reason. Some say it because things are so different from what they grew up with and the changes in culture and in the cultures present are disorientating and uncomfortable. Others say it because they experience a narrowing of sympathies and unfriendliness and a suspicion that they didn't know in previous decades and they feel that something's been lost. And the church is diminishing. And it's diminishing in power and influence and it's more often a joke than a serious voice. And it's taken for granted in many circles that nobody with a brain will have an active religious faith. And that those who do are either stupid or worse and there are scandals of abuse and cover-up. And some of us are old enough to remember when that wasn't the case. And it's uncomfortable and disorientating to live with it. And some of us wonder whether there's any point in going on, being involved with something that seems to have so little life in it. Our own external circumstances can change and have an effect on us. We find the contours of our lives shifting. What we thought was certain, what we took for granted, just isn't there anymore. A partner that we depended on leaves, dies, changes. Our job suddenly isn't there. Our health is no longer easily assumed. Things we offered and thought were valued turn out not to be needed. We no longer know who we are or how to be. Sometimes it's good stuff. We move to a new place. We change jobs. We have a, a new partner. We are, we're bringing children into the world. And although we want it and have planned it and worked for it and sought it, it still leaves us uncertain about how to manage life because the old patterns don't work anymore. To a community for whom all the old ways of relating to God and therefore to the world have been challenged and suddenly become contested rather than assumed and depended on, to a community that had sought change but now had to work out how to live it, to a community that was needing not so much to reinvent as to invent a theology and a practice and a life in and with God, Calvin preached a theology that at its heart said, God is for you because God has chosen to be for you and therefore you can trust in that. Everything else may change, even your own thoughts and feelings, actions and circumstances may change, 
The way the world is may change. It may leave you feel that nothing is dependable or sure, but this is. God is for you. And therefore, in the face of delight or of chaos, you can trust in that. In our context of Western Protestantism, and particularly separatist nonconformity, like it or not, Calvin has been important. And Calvinism has been important. And it's that ism, I think, that can trip us up. Because he who preached it is not without sin. His choices and ways of organizing seem to us problematic, to say the least. So what happens when theology comes from a source that's tainted or damaged? It is a human tendency to systematize, to organize and define and put edges on our thinking and our living. And then we find ourselves trusting in those edges, in that system, in the neat pattern we've created, or in the person who's created it for us. It's a temptation to trust in a system, in a way of thinking, in an organization, in a person we can understand who tells us how it is. But he was a sinner as we are. And his system is not God. And his theology is an attempt to speak of things. It is not in and of itself truth and the presence of God. So just as Calvin called those around him not to be afraid because all that they had trusted in was taken away, so we need to notice when we are trusting in systems and practices and norms and not in God. Because systems and practices and norms are always partial and they're always tainted because they're dependent on people like Calvin and like you and like me. And we need to face that. We need to be realistic about the truth that just as much as I am a sinner and I will do things in my own self-interest even when I don't realize it and I will manipulate and mold my world to make me okay and so will everybody else. And that includes the people who are working out the theology and who have, through grace and intelligence, huge insight into understanding what it is to talk of God and the capacity to share that. All our theology, all our practice, all our attempts at faith and at faithful living are being done by sinners, by all of us. And therefore, they are all tainted and broken. And it's not to minimize the issue around Calvin's complicity in murder, nor around Yoder's abuse. Those are real problems to be faced head on and not to be swept under the carpet. And that involves facing also our own sin and our own complicity in the systems of oppression and destruction. And so it becomes a call not to trust in the system of theology or the understanding of the teaching or even my own capacity to make sense of this mystery of being alive, being in relationship with God and people. And it's the call not to become anxious when I can't make it make sense and tie up all the loose ends. And it's the call not to make a neat pattern and then invite others to accept it in order that I can accept them and assume that God does the same. It becomes a call to modesty, to tentativeness, to the knowledge that just as sometimes others are wrong, sometimes horribly wrong, so might indeed might I be? And so holding my theology, and in particular the judgments that it provokes in me, holding it lightly is important. Because it's not my theology, it's not our understanding, it's not any system that's the root and center of the faith and the relationship with God. 
the God who is for us, the God from whom nothing can separate us, comes to us in Jesus. And that's not neat and tidy and a system. It was a baby born to an unmarried mother in a dangerous setup. This is not a logical argument in a book. Jesus comes to us in a very messy way that doesn't fit neatly into categories and doesn't answer all the questions and doesn't sort it all out. But that's the assurance that we're given. Not somebody who had it all neatly tied down so that we can hold on to it and understand it. Not Yoder, not Calvin, not Augustine, not even Paul. But a person who lived human life in its fullness. And that means in its messiness and its complexity and its uncertainty and its muddle. And who died a human death with its sense of loss and distress. And whom God raised in love because death is not strong enough to overcome love. In that, God has come to us. And here is the only sense of assurance. Not being right, not being sinless, not trusting in somebody else to be right or sinless or have all the answers, but trusting in the God who is not constrained by the systems and who meets us in Jesus and who does not leave us. Let us pray. God of love and life, God of hope and promise, there are days when we cling on by our fingertips and other days when we know unshakably that you hold and love and work in this world. And we thank you that wherever we are, in our trust and our hope and our faith, you want us and you want us to turn to you and you want us to bring our prayers and so we do. And we trust not in our capacity to pray and not in the strength of faith that underlies our praying, but we trust in you. And so we pray for our world. We pray for the children who are living in the woods around Calais. And we pray for those who have the power to change that. And we pray for all who are refugees, for those who are refugees from violence, for those who have traveled to seek food and water, for those who've had to leave their homes because of landslides and because of fire, for those whose stories make the headlines and those who are overlooked. God be a home to them. And we pray for those who can change it knowing that we too can be part of the changing and we pray give us grace and courage to do what we need to do. That our prayers for the refugees may be answered. 
We pray for those who live in violence, who cannot run away. For those who use violence to make themselves feel safe. To protect their homes and their families and their way of life. And we pray for a lowering of barriers and tension. And a growth in trust between people and among people in something bigger than guns and bombs and walls and barbed wire. Impossibility and fellowship. And we pray for all those who are working at reconciliation and peace. Be to them all that they need to keep going with that vital work. We pray for those in our own community, our own society, who feel unsafe. For those who feel unsafe in their own homes. For those who feel that the systems on which they depend, the systems of law and order, of health care, of social support, that they're all breaking down. We pray for those who are trying to plug the gaps, for those who are trying to make things work, for those who feel trapped by a system that does not seem to respond humanly. We pray for hope and a sense of renewal and of determination to keep going and the capacity to relate humanly. And we pray for ourselves for our fellowships, for our families, for the people we love, for those who have shaped us, those for whom we are responsible. Lord, may we in all of that work and live and celebrate in ways that grow out of this basic knowledge that it is you we depend on, not ourselves and not the structures we have created, but you, your mercy, your love, your purpose. And as we learn to depend more and more on that, so teach us to live it out, that your kingdom may come and your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen.